Well, good morning. Uh, obviously, again, I am not Pastor Michael. Um, he and uh, his family are currently in Tennessee. They're in East Tennessee this morning um, at, uh, at a church called Seymour uh, Baptist Church that is one of our supporting churches and partnering churches. So uh, you guys, please just be praying for him and his family as they're, uh, as they're traveling, and they will be traveling uh, next week as well, uh, and they'll be back the week after that. So please remember to keep them in your prayers. So uh, with Pastor Paul's sermon last week on the Great Commission, we have officially finished our study on Mark uh, of who Jesus is, the Son of God, right? The true Son of God. Now, as we continue to study God's Word together, uh, we will be starting a new, uh, a new sermon series in the book of Colossians, which is actually a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae. So, uh, so before we dive in here, picture this. <clears throat> Imagine you're a part of a new church plant in a town surrounded by a community and a culture that encourages religious apathy or spirituality and openness to the elemental world, self-healing, meditation, worship to Mother Earth, manifesting or visualizing the things you want, all just forms of self-worship, or being surrounded by a culture that accepts Jesus, but also is adding rules that must then be followed, laws to be obeyed, to be accepted by God. Jesus plus this, or Jesus plus that. Imagine being in this church and hearing the gospel preached, studying the scriptures, praying with other believers, worshiping with other believers, and being so encouraged and built up in the faith, but then leaving and going out into the world to your job, your family, your friends, and hearing from the surrounding culture that that's not enough. You must do more to be accepted by God. Or hearing that what you believe is hocus-pocus, it's nonsense, or it's too exclusive. That's where we're getting. <laughs> Can you imagine how challenging that would be to your faith, to your church? Would you begin to question, to doubt? Well, this situation, uh, this is the situation in which the church in Colossae found itself. They're in need of encouragement, of prayer, and of a reminder that Christ alone is sufficient. Amen? Amen? He is sufficient for salvation, our redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, and He is sufficient, sufficient for our sanctification, the living out of our salvation as we grow closer to Him. So as we consider the situation that the church in Colossae was in, it should not be difficult to imagine that. Because it's a situation in which I believe that we at Redeemer find ourselves in. It's very similar. We're surrounded by a culture that is challenging to our faith. And just as the Colossian church received encouragement in this letter from Paul, I believe our church can as well. So please pray with me before we examine the scriptures together this morning. Father, thank you for giving us your word. God, thank you for inspiring 
men to write your word. Lord, that we can know you. Lord, that we can know your will, God. That we can know what the truth is. Father, please speak to us this morning through your word and through our studies. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we really get into it, I'd like to set the scene and give some background context to this letter that we're about to look at. So the book of Colossians, first and foremost, is a letter from the Apostle Paul to the church in a city named Colossae. And today, and throughout this sermon series, we'll be diving in and sort of preaching through sections of this. But I would encourage you to read the entire book of Colossians. It it was a letter, and so it was meant to be read from beginning to end. And so, you know, as however long it takes, um, however many weeks it takes us to preach through the details here and the theology that Paul is teaching, I would encourage you to revisit Colossians all the way through, over again. It's only four chapters. It's actually pretty short. Um, But being able to understand the entire picture of this letter uh, can be really helpful as we dive in. So just to paint the picture, when I say church, right, he wrote this letter to the church in Colossae. When I say church, I, I don't mean a big building with a steeple or crosses or stained glass windows or anything like that. This was very likely just a group of believers meeting in someone's home. Just regular people who believed in the gospel that they had heard. And if you're into geography, Colossae, this town, it was located on the Lycus River in the Lycus Valley in what is now western Turkey. You can actually Google Maps it. If you go to Google Maps and type in Colossae, uh, it will pull up right there. Um, and if you go to the street view, uh, I don't know who took this picture, but there's a picture taken right in the middle of, of a field. As far as I know, it hasn't been uh, excavated or anything like that. There are some ruins there in the picture. It's kind of interesting. It was nearby two other cities named Hierapolis and Laodicea, both of which we can assume also had a group of believers or a church, as Paul makes reference to them in chapters 2 and for the closing of the letter. Paul's instruction was for this letter to be read aloud to the church in Colossae and then passed on to the church in Laodicea to be read aloud. So it was a letter of encouragement to be passed across these churches. Of note, he also mentions a letter that he wrote to the the church in Laodicea to be read and then passed on to the church in Colossae. Now we see this scripturally. Many of Paul's letters were being circulated among regional churches so that as many churches and believers as possible could be encouraged by Paul's writings. And we get to take part in that. Unfortunately, the actual letter to the Laodiceans did not survive as far as I'm aware. Uh, So we don't know what his encouragement to them was. Uh, it's, it's a pretty interesting. Now, Paul had never been to either of these churches. We see in some of his letters 
to other churches, his mentioning being there and teaching them and ministering them, ministering to them, but we don't see that here. In fact, the first verse in chapter 2 says that he had not seen them face to face. He did not directly start these churches, but rather indirectly. It's widely accepted that a man named Epaphras, and that's a weird name, so that was a great, uh, that was a great uh, attempt there. <laughs> a man named Epaphras likely started the church in Colossae after believing in the gospel that he heard from Paul while Paul was doing ministry in Ephesus for two years. We find that in Acts chapter 19, if you're curious about that reference. Paul had been in the city of Ephesus, which wasn't far geographically from these other three cities. So it's a, it, there's a good chance that Epaphras probably had heard the gospel from Paul and then taken it back to his hometown. Sorry, I lost my place. Here we go. <clears throat> So yeah, Epaphras likely went back to his hometown in Colossae and shared the gospel. Uh, uh, and, and, and the word of the Lord spread. And the gospel spread. And uh, there became, there, there grew, right? The, there grew believers and, uh, and a, a, a church formed. So let us fast forward a few years. Epaphras has shared the gospel the word of the Lord has spread in Colossae. A church or a group of believers has been founded, but their faith is being challenged. It's being challenged by sort of this Greek-influenced form of Judaism that was not part of the gospel. This idea of a spiritual experience, a deeper spiritual experience founded in visions and ascetic self-denial. So it's sort of this idea of asceticism is severe self-denial uh, and severe self-discipline with the hopes of attaining some higher, deeper spiritual experience, which, as we know, is not part of the gospel. So this idea was sort of beginning to infiltrate their church and, and beginning to infiltrate the believers there. So Epaphras goes to Rome, where Paul is, who's currently imprisoned there. And he tells Paul about what's going on in the church in Colossae. Their strengths, their weaknesses, these challenges that they're facing. And Epaphras then stays with Paul there to pray for them. And again, we see that in chapter 4. We'll get there. And this is the context in which Paul writes this letter of encouragement. So I, ho I hope that that sort of paints a picture. Yeah. So let's read our passage for today, for today one more time. This is part of Paul's introduction to his letter to the church in Colossae. He says this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you as indeed, uh, as indeed in the world, in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also as it also did among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our brother, Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So I know that's a lot, but we're going we're gonna to walk through that this morning. So Paul begins his letter with a greeting in verses 1 and 2. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. So he starts by identifying specifically who the letter is from, right? That's a normal way to start a letter. First, himself. Who he he self-describes as what? An apostle of Christ Jesus. And how is he an apostle? He says it, by the will of God. Not by his own will. As we are all aware, Paul or Saul as he was known then, was adamantly against the church before he was converted. And we see that in Acts 8 and 9. Second, he introduces Timothy, who he describes as our brother, referring to the idea that we are part of a new family when we become followers of Christ. Timothy wasn't Paul's literal brother, No, not literally. He did see him sort of as that way because he helped to disciple Timothy. When we repent and believe, we are seen as children of God, adopted into the family of God, into Christ's inheritance, so that Christ is our brother and we are all brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of the living God, the Father. This idea is revisited a lot. So remember that. So Paul also identifies who the letter is addressed to. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So he calls the believers in Colossae two things. Saints and faithful brothers. So saints. Well, what is a saint? There are a lot of opinions out there. You may believe that saints are either angels or some humans that have somehow attained or achieved a higher religious rank or a level. 
a high echelon Christian. Or you may believe that it's just a football team that didn't make the playoffs this year. There's, there's always next year. <clears throat> but when we, see, when we see saints mentioned in Scripture, specifically in Paul's letters, it is always in reference to believers. To believers in general. A saint is a member of the family of God. In Romans 1.7, in his letter to the Romans, he says, To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. In 1 Corinthians, he says, To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's right. Ephesians 2, verse 19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So a saint is a member of the family of God, a believer. He also calls them faithful brothers. Again, like Timothy, referring to this idea that we are part of this family when we become followers of Christ. So Paul then gives his official greeting. And what is it? Grace and peace from God our Father. We see Paul use this greeting in almost all of the letters he writes to the churches. Grace and peace from God our Father. And in some letters he, said, he also follows that up with from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We see this in Philippians, Ephesians, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Romans. He uses it often. He says, God our Father. Grace and peace from God our Father. He has already identified Timothy as a brother. He has already identified the believers in Colossae as faithful brothers. And he then identifies God as all of their father, himself included. Again, supporting this idea that there is unity in the body of Christ. That despite distance or challenges to our faiths, if we are believers, then we are part of the body of Christ, this family of God together, saints. And so his constant greeting in his letters is grace and peace to you. From who? From God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And I believe that he starts his letters with this greeting because Paul knows, Paul knows that the true source of real grace and real peace come only from God our Father through Jesus. Amen? He begins each letter on that theological basis. And it's interesting because, again, he has never seen any of these people before. It's different because uh, this letter is a little different because he, hasn't, he hadn't been there teaching. Epaphras had come and sort of given him report of what was going on. And so, and so Paul builds a connection there. He reminds them that, hey, even though... 
We haven't met. I'm praying for you. I'm thankful for you. Grace and peace be to you. And he reminds them that they are brothers. Timothy is a brother. They are brothers to him. And they are all children of God the Father. And this is how he starts his letter to them. So coming back to our passage, in verses 3 through 14, we see Paul start the body of his letter with two things. Thanksgiving and prayer. And this is where I want to spend most of our time today. So in verse 3, he starts with thanksgiving. Verses 3 through 8. Say, we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of this you have heard it, of this you have heard before in the word of the truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed the whole world, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing. As it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So he doesn't go directly into teaching them or rebuking them or correcting them or exhortation even. He starts by telling them how he has heard about them from Epaphras and why he is thankful for them. In verse 4, he has heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for the saints who are the believers. Both of these stemming from what? From their hope found in verse 5. As we've mentioned before, when hope is used in the Bible, it's not typically used in the sense of, I hope this will happen, of being unsure. It's typically used in the sense of assurance, of a knowing that something will happen, an expectation. And that's what the Greek word here means. The Greek word is elpis, and it means expectation. This is the hope that the Colossian church had, and this is the hope that we have. Amen? That we put our faith in Christ, and we seek to love each other. Why? Because of the hope, the expectation that we now have through Christ, that our sins are forgiven. That we have inherited His righteousness. That we have an inheritance with Christ, in Christ, in heaven. And this is a church that, based on Epaphras' report, is faithful to Christ, is loving each other, and is expectant or hopeful for the future. So Paul first expresses gratefulness to God for the faith, the hope, and the love of the Colossian believers. But what are those based on? Well, verses 5 through 7 tell us 
the gospel which has come to you. The gospel, the grace of God in truth, or the word of the truth. He describes it several ways. He says that the gospel is what? Increasing and bearing fruit in the world and among them. Paul recognizes that. Even even from not being there, from hearing Epaphras report of their faith, of their love because of their hope, Paul recognizes that the gospel is bearing fruit there. And so their faith grows, their love grows, their hope grows, all by the gospel being heard and understood, bearing fruit in their lives. So again, Paul's first response is to tell them about how thankful he is for them and for that, because he recognizes it. Gratitude should always be our first response. Especially our first response to God when we are seeing people being changed by the gospel and growing in their faith, their hope, and their love. I'm seeing it here. I don't know if you guys are seeing it, but I have seen it in the past year, year and a half. I've seen God change people and grow people through the gospel. And so again, gratitude should always be our first response. We see this happening in the church in Colossae and we can see it happening here. So let us not forget to stop and be thankful together this morning for the work that God has has done and is continuing to do both in the world and among us. So let's stop here and pray just for a moment. Father God, we thank you. Lord, we, we just we want to stop right now and just thank you. God, that, that the gospel of Jesus Christ, of your Son, the story of what you have done for us to redeem us, that we may be part of the kingdom of your beloved Son, that that gospel is growing, God, and it is bearing fruit, and it's increasing. Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you for how you have moved, Lord, and how you are continuing to move, and how we know, Lord, we expect you to move, Lord, because we know the truth of the gospel. We thank you. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. So moving into verse 9. We see Paul begin to tell them 
the church in Colossae, that they have been praying for the Colossian church. And when I say they, I mean Paul, Timothy, and Epaphras. We see that, again, a little further on in chapter 4, which we'll get to. <clears throat> but Paul begins to tell them how they've been praying for them. He mentions this even with the, the thanksgiving that we discussed in verse 3. They've been praying for them since hearing about the church from Epaphras. Verse 9 says, Since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. Paul then begins to explain how they've been praying for them, what they've been praying for. And his prayer here almost mirrors the structure of the entire letter. It's a picture of, of what he wants for them in the context of the challenges that they're facing. And he's about to expound on these ideas through the rest of the letter. So when we get to the end of Colossians, and however long that may be, we should be able to look back at this prayer with a little deeper understanding. So his prayer consists of three main things. He prays for their spiritual wisdom and their knowledge of his will, being not Paul's, but God's will. He prays for them to be strengthened. And he finishes with thanksgiving. So Paul starts by telling them in verse 9 that they're praying that the believers in Colossae would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. He prays for their knowledge and for their understanding of what? Of God's will. Now, as a young church, as new believers, he wants them to know who Jesus is. He wants them to know who God is and what he did through Jesus to accomplish his purpose to redeem us from our sins. This is the gospel. He wants them to have a firm hold on the gospel. First and foremost. And so this is his prayer. That they would be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Because again, part of this external teaching that was sort of that they were experiencing was saying that there's a deeper level of knowledge. You know, if you do all of this harsh uh, self-discipline, you can attain a deeper level of spiritual knowledge and wisdom, which isn't true. And so Paul starts his prayer by praying for their true being filled, them truly being filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, we could dive into this a little bit more, but I'll wait. Because next week, uh, our, our friend Luke Clark from New King Church will be here preaching. And he'll, he will be preaching on this next passage where Paul really dives into what the will of God is for all of humanity. If you want a sneak peek, just read ahead. It's verses 15 through 23. And it is one of the most clear pictures of the gospel.
So just as he starts his prayer by praying for their understanding of God's will and for spiritual wisdom, he starts his teaching, again, with a very clear explanation of who Jesus is and what God has done through him. Just to give you a sneak peek, I want to read verses 19 through 20. And again, I know that we're going we're gonna to be here next week. It's just a warm-up, but it's so good. Verse 19 says this, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on heaven or whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. You want to know what the will of God is? That is the will of God. So Paul wants the Colossians to have this clear understanding and knowledge of these things to stand on. Because from there, he goes into verse 10. And what's the next thing he prays for? He says, So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Now these may seem like two different things. Like he's praying for one, their knowledge, and two, how they live. But they're not separate ideas. The one really leads into the next. The former leads into the latter. He wants them to have this solid understanding and knowledge of God's will of the gospel. Why? So that they will walk it out in their lives. So that they have a foundation to stand on which affects how they live, causing them to bear fruit, to walk in a manner pleasing to the Lord, to grow in what? More knowledge. And this is important, because notice it's not the other way around. Paul is not saying, you have to do this or that. You have to live a certain way, or not do this or that, in order to then attain this deeper understanding and spiritual experience. Because this is what the Colossians had been hearing. You have to do all of this stuff to go deeper and to have more knowledge and to have more spiritual experience. Uh, it, it's sort of a section of Judaism. Um, Paul's letter makes reference to them, but we don't know exactly you know, who it was. He doesn't name names. Um, so this is what the Colossians had been hearing. And he's praying that they would grasp onto the gospel of Jesus. Grasp onto it. And that God would fill them with a true understanding of that. That that's where it would start. Because if that's the case, then the effect of that understanding is then seen in how they live. They then live in light of that understanding. And as a response to that, as a response to that, as a response to the understanding, this, this may sound familiar, it's the idea of faith and works, right? That faith without works is dead, because true faith causes works, but it's not the other way around. You can't have works and attain your way to more faith. Well, let's talk afterwards. So again, how applicable 
is this to us? Very. It's very applicable to us. Because if we grasp the truth of the gospel, of who God is, of who Jesus is, of what he did for us, then we know when we hear things that aren't true. If we know what the truth is, then we don't have to question, oh, is is this true? Is that true? How do I know? Anything can be true. What is truth? Does truth exist? There is no truth. It's a slippery slope. But we have the scriptures. We have the truth. And the more understanding we have of the truth, the firmer the foundation we stand on. That foundation is Christ Jesus. There's an old hymn that says, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. And may this be a prayer for us as well. For our church, that we would be filled with a knowledge of His will of the scriptures, of the gospel, with spiritual wisdom that would then seep into every corner of our lives. Every little nook and cranny of our brains and our hearts that would then overflow from us and seep into our actions, our walks, our lives, our families, our friends. And that we would then grow deeper and more knowledge. May that be a prayer for us as well. Paul goes on in verse 11 and also prays that they would be strengthened. He says, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Now, this verse alone could be an entire sermon. There is so much truth here. And there is so much depth there. Paul has heard what the Colossians are going through. He's heard about their struggles. He's heard about these teachings that are sort of challenging them. And so he prays for their strength. Well, strength for what? Endurance and patience with joy. And if anybody knows that ministry and living the Christian life takes endurance and patience, it's Paul. The idea that becoming a Christian will make your life easy is frankly nonsense. It's nonsense. Paul had been in and out of prison for preaching the gospel. He'd been shipwrecked. People wanted to kill him. And this was all after becoming a Christian. He didn't have those problems before becoming a Christian. Well, he wasn't technically a tax collector. So he knows that the Colossians will need to endure and be patient as they grow in their faith, as they grow in their knowledge, as they face challenges to their faith. And despite that, be joyful in their endurance and their patience. And he knows that they can't do it on their own, just as he couldn't, and just as we can't. 
Which is why he prays for them to be strengthened with what? With all power according to his glorious might. Not according to their own strength or their own knowledge. This is all according to his strength, to his will. Which is why we can be joyful through trials. We see that in James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it all joy, brothers, when trials come. Because we can lean on His strength and not our own. We can have joy with endurance and patience through His strength. Amen? If we are strengthened according to His glorious might, just as the Colossians needed strength, again, May that be a prayer for our church as well. For endurance and patience and joy. That we may be strengthened in all power according to His glorious might. We'll need it. Amen? I know I need it. It's true. So Paul prays for their spiritual wisdom. He prays for their strength. And he finishes by coming back to thanksgiving. Verses 12 and 13. He says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Just as He started with giving thanks for the Colossians' faith in Christ, their love for the saints, because their hope for their future inheritance, He finishes with thanksgiving as well. This time thanking God for the work that He has done for the Colossians in saving them. He says, the Father has qualified you. And then in verse 13, He includes Himself in those who have been saved. He says, He has delivered us. And so Paul begins to transition into the next section of his letter, then detailing what God has done for us giving all the more reasons to be thankful. This is so important. Again, we see the importance of remembering to give thanks. Remembering where we came from. Being in the domain of darkness, disqualified. And stopping to recognize where we are now, if we are indeed believers that our sins are forgiven, that we are qualified, that we are able to share in the inheritance of the saints. And who has made that possible? God the Father through Jesus the Son. So we give thanks. Now as you hopefully already have noticed, if you come to Redeemer more than once, we talk about the gospel of Jesus a lot here. And I'm sure it gets repetitive, but it gets no less important 
It gets no less powerful. It gets no less meaningful. It gets no less true. If you hear nothing else or read nothing else, read and hear verses 15 through 23 before next week. It is the gospel of Jesus that we stand on as a foundation of our knowledge of God, of our spiritual wisdom. It's the gospel that affects how we live our lives. It's the gospel that increases and bears fruit and changes unchangeable people. May Paul's letter to the church in Colossae also be for us today. As we read and as we study what he wrote so many years ago, may we also see God fill us with a deeper knowledge of his will. May he give us strength for endurance and patience when, with joy when trials come. And may we continuously pray and give thanks to him for what he has done and is continuing to do among us. That just as the Colossians did, we may continue to grow in our faith in Christ Jesus, to grow in our love for each other, and to grow in our hope or our expectation of our future inheritance with the saints because of the gospel working among us. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for this encouragement, God, that we can find in this letter to the Colossian church. God, that, you know, the situation that we find ourselves in is so similar to the Colossian church. Father, so, you know, as, as we read and study through this, Lord, I pray that you would encourage us. God, I pray that you would fill us with the knowledge of your will. Lord, let us, let us understand and know, not just with a head knowledge, but with this heart knowledge, this deeper knowing, this spiritual wisdom that only you can provide. Help us to know the gospel more deeply. God, that it would affect our lives and that it, it would bear fruit in our lives. Lord, give us strength for endurance and patience through the trials that we go through. Lord, and help us to see those as opportunities for joy. Father, not to dread those things, 
but to know that it is an opportunity to lean on your strength. Lord, and again, we thank you. We thank you for saving us, for qualifying us, for delivering us from the domain of darkness and transferring us to the kingdom of your beloved Son. It's in his name we pray. Amen.